This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. We have two exciting and completely unrelated articles in store. John, what is up first? Well, we're going to go back to the world of COVID. And so this is molnupiravir plus usual care versus usual care alone as early treatment for adults with COVID-19 at increased risk of adverse outcomes. The panoramic open label platform adaptive randomized trial uh, published Lancet hot off the press December 22nd, Butler et al. Yes, this panoramic trial is getting a lot of attention on Twitter. So what was the research question for this study? They wanted to know what is the effectiveness of molnupiravir in reducing hospital admissions or death, or both, in vaccinated patients. And why did this article catch your eye? Well, unfortunately, COVID still hasn't gone away. And, you know, an early treatment to try to prevent severe illness and hospitalization could certainly be important to help deburden the healthcare system and also improve outcomes for patients. Molnupiravir is an oral antiviral medication. It was originally developed for influenza and somehow it incorporates itself into viral RNA to lead to inhibition of viral replication. There've been a bunch of animal models as well as some phase one, two, and three human trials showing that it's safe and well tolerated. Then there was this large trial that I don't know if we talked about it or not, but the move out randomized control trial in unvaccinated patients suggesting reduction in hospitalization or death. This was mostly during the time when COVID was kind of the Delta, Gamma, and Mu mu variant. Um, And so one of the questions is, well, you know, with Omicron, is it going to be helpful or not? But there's been other small studies that showed mixed findings. So they really just want to know, like, you know, is this going to be helpful for vaccinated patients in the Omicron era? Yeah, I agree. This sort of crucial point is that the move out trial was in unvaccinated individuals. Does it work in vaccinated individuals? We don't know, but certainly across North America and elsewhere, they're handing out this drug as if we know that it works in vaccinated individuals. So this is a very impressive study. Anywho, what was the study design? This was a multi-center primary care open label randomized control trial done in the United Kingdom. The patient population was 50 years of age or older. They also included those 18 years of age or older with any comorbidity, you know, asthma, COPD, heart disease, you name it. Uh, But patients were not hospitalized. Their symptoms started within five days and they excluded pregnant or breastfeeding patients, uh, patients of childbearing potential who were not willing to use contraception or if they had certain allergies of concern. Patients were randomized and patients were pulled from 4,500 general practices across the United Kingdom. They were randomized to either molnupiravir plus usual care versus usual care alone. And for the molnupiravir arm, it was 800 milligrams twice a day for five days. They did stratify by age as well as vaccination status. And then in the usual care arm, you know, for very high risk patients, they were eligible for other things like monoclonal antibodies, remdesivir, Paxil, COVID, you name it. Patients were followed up for 28 days after randomization. There was also this kind of virology sub-study that was done at the outcomes. So the primary outcome was all-cause, non-elective hospitalization admission or death in 28 days. There were a bunch of secondary outcomes. These included some self-reported things like time to recovery, self-reported wellness, and a whole bunch of other ones. It was an intention to treat analysis. And then there's also a Bayesian analysis, which I am not even going to pretend. I I still don't totally understand how Bayesian analysis works, but that's how they analyze the data. Cool. So really what we're talking about here is an open label RCT for adults 50 and up 
or 18 and up with a medical condition. And really, they were randomized to drug versus no drug. And the primary outcome was all-cause non-elective hospital admission or death in 28 days. Is that right? Nicely summarized. Cool. What did the patients look like? What was the table one? So over 16 months, 22,783 participants were enrolled. And so that meant about 12,800 in the molnupiravir arm versus 12,900 in the usual care arm. Uh, The mean age was 56. About 69% of patients had comorbidities. 94% had received at least three doses of vaccine. 59% of patients were female. The majority of patients were white. And then in the molnupiravir group, you know, 95% of patients took it as prescribed for the full five days and fewer than one percent of patients in both groups received other things like monoclonal antibodies this is incredible Twenty-two thousand patients randomized in 16 months like the uk puts canada and many other nations to shame when it comes to running trials quickly and effectively it really is impressive. I credit to the investigators. Jeez. Okay. Well, that was the main result for me, but I guess we should keep going. John, what, what did they find? What was the main result here? Yeah, well, unfortunately, I guess maybe we didn't find the result we were hoping for. What they showed was that hospitalizations or death were recorded in 105 or 1% of patients in the molnupiravir group compared with 98 or 1% in the usual care group. The odds ratio 1.06, confidence intervals 0.81 to 1.41. Now, in the context of this Bayesian analysis, they did comment on the probability of superiority of 0.33. And I guess what that indicates is that there's a 33% chance that the addition of molnupiravir to usual care reduces hospitalization or death by a non-zero amount. Take that for what you will. You know, they did look at a number of secondary outcomes. So they did show possibly that the median time to first recovery uh, was improved in the molnupiravir group, nine days versus 15 in the usual care group alone. And, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff. We can kind of dig into those if you want. No real difference in emergency department visits. No serious adverse events were definitively related to the intervention group. But interestingly, they actually didn't systematically uh, assess for adverse effects. Um, We can talk about that later, too. Okay. So, yeah, I guess you're right. It's disappointing in the sense that this drug clearly does not prevent hospitalization or death. But you're right. That is interesting that it improves time to recovery by about six days. Anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. What are the main limitations here? So this was not a blinded, nor was it a placebo-controlled, randomized control trial. Yes, I can appreciate that the outcome of getting hospitalized or getting, you know, uh, sick enough for a severe adverse event is unlikely to be affected by like the placebo effect. But I think you could argue that the time to recovery certainly could be. And so if the only outcomes that are really impressive are the secondary ones, I, I don't know. I wonder how much of that could be a placebo effect or there could have been a placebo effect had we actually, you know, compared a placebo arm. The other component of here was that, you know, this was a pragmatic trial by design, of course. And so they adopted this pharmacovigilance strategy where they didn't actually standardize and look for adverse events. Now, also to be fair, you know, in other studies looking at molnupiravir, it's been actually quite well tolerated. But I just think like probably a good idea to systematically look for adverse outcomes like you do in most randomized control trials. But I don't know. I guess you can tell me if maybe something's changing that I'm not aware of. Um, 
they did a lot of secondary analyses and they don't really say if they accounted for multiple comparisons, which again, just makes you wonder, like, are some of these secondary outcomes flagging positive because they did so many secondary analyses. The other thing too, is that of the patient population, only 6% of the patients were actually 75 years of age or older. And so maybe this wasn't really targeting a high, high risk patient population. Mm, yeah, fair point. I mean, I, I think it's a terrific point that perhaps this time to recovery isn't related to the drug and instead is just related to the perception of benefit by the patients. So that's that's a great point, right? Like, and that's the major flaw with non-placebo controlled trials. But I understand why it wasn't placebo controlled. Like it is a ton of work to get a placebo, usually from the drug manufacturer and to do this quickly and pragmatically, that's hard. The point about the, you know, that they didn't systematically look for adverse events, I think it must have to do with the regulatory bodies in the UK. Um, I think it would be harder to get away with this in Canada, but honestly, it makes sense because we're already using this very commonly. We have a good sense of the safety profile here. And in order to systematically look for adverse events, like you would need millions and millions of extra dollars. And keep in mind, these are all outpatients, right? So what are you going to do? Are you going to go the, find the person on day five and, you know, take blood work and ask them all sorts of questions and then validate that? So I, I'm okay with that. But uh, man, fascinating trial. Anyway, what's a take-home point from your standpoint? A take-home molnupiravir did not reduce frequency of COVID-associated hospitalizations or death among high-risk vaccinated patients in the community. A practice changing for you? I guess not. Well, you know, maybe it is in the sense that I don't think I'll be prescribing molnupiravir. But I think we already highlighted this. I got to give a huge shout out to the investigators. Like this was a study that was done in a primary care population, which like we really don't see randomized control trials commonly done in this setting. And then for them to randomize over 20,000 patients, my goodness, it's it's a huge accomplishment no matter what the outcome is. I agree. And I think it clearly shows us you know, you, you need to do randomized trials and you need to do randomized trials in, in the population you're then going to give a drug to. People have been getting this drug, even though they're vaccinated without good randomized trial data to support that it's helpful. And whoops, here's a trial that shows, nope, it ain't going to reduce your risk of death or hospitalization. And I guess like, you know, the point about what about reducing duration of symptoms because that is important you know like if people can get back to work sooner um no matter what your profession is but in particular among you know healthcare workers or people that just gotta get back to their jobs to pay their bills like that is an important outcome but i you know it wasn't the primary outcome and so i think we need more data before we kind of hang our hat on that one too yeah and to your point john like without a placebo it will be hard to know is it fact or is it fiction but yeah, I mean, based on that monster size randomized trial, it sure seems like there could be some benefit. Anyway, we will change gears to the next article. But before we do, a quick note from our sponsor. So yes, um, this episode has been brought to you by Sault Ste. Marie Physician Recruitment and Retention Program, aka SUMED. Mike, I know you love going to the Sioux, but you know, maybe is there like kind of a top three things about working in the Sioux? What do you think? Yes, top three. Okay. Number one, you've never met a more appreciative patient population, okay? Everyone is so thankful for the care you deliver. Number two, 
as a general internist, I actually get to be a general internist, okay? I'm covering endocrine, I'm covering ID, I'm covering rheumatology, I'm covering dermatology uh, when I'm on call up there. And number three, the eMERGE docs are such a delightful group to work with and the nurses, I should mention. So I'd say those are my top three for locuming in the Sioux. Yeah, it seems like a really great environment to practice. Um, and so I, I think we'll have a link as well to kind of the Sioux recruitment link as well. Hey, on our website. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, they're hiring um, family docs, specialists, uh, you name it. Uh, there's also opportunities for residents to do electives up there. If you want more information, send me a message on Twitter or email me at mike.fralick at utoronto.ca. All right, now we will get back to the next article. Um, so, you know, this article was a bit of a sleeper hit. I, I hadn't even heard about this trial ongoing. So it's entitled Apixaban for Patients with Atrial Fibrillation on Hemodialysis, a Multicenter Randomized Controlled Trial, Renal AF, published in Circulation December 2022. All righty. What was the question here? So the research question here was really just like a nice fundamental question, you know, is apixaban non-inferior to warfarin for patients who have atrial fibrillation and they're on hemodialysis? And when I say non-inferior, I mean non-inferior for risk of bleeding. Ah, this is really, really important. Um, and I don't want to take it away from you, but like I had to think about this like twice just in the last week on service for med consults. But tell me, why is this important? There are no randomized data for the safety or efficacy of apixaban for stroke prevention in patients with AFib who have end-stage renal disease on dialysis. Like, that's pretty wild, okay? Because there's lots and lots of patients who are on apixaban who are within this population, and yet we don't have randomized trials. Amazing. Well, what was the design of the study here? This was a pragmatic open-label trial that was investigator-initiated and funded by grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer. Uh, Pfizer manufactures apixaban. And while it was open-label, the outcome evaluation was blinded. So the population of um, individuals were patients on hemodialysis who have AFib. They had a CHADS VASC of two or higher, and they're on dialysis for three months or longer. A few key exclusion criteria, uh, moderate to severe mitral stenosis, a life expectancy of less than three months. If the physician felt like they weren't a good candidate for oral anticoagulant use, so like they had a recent bleed or they're anemic and their hemoglobin's in the 80s, or if they had a need for aspirin at a dose of 81 milligrams a day, or drugs like clopidogrel, prasugrel, or Tacagrelor. The intervention was a Pixaban 5 milligrams or 2.5 milligrams twice a day uh, for those 80 plus weight of 60 kilograms of or less or both. And the comparator was warfarin. And as I alluded to, the primary outcome was time to major or clinically relevant non-major bleeding. And there are lots of secondary outcomes. I think with a primary outcome like that, it's important to get into the weeds a bit. So like what do you mean uh, a major bleeding? So these are from the ISTH and these criteria have been used in many other studies as well. So a brief summary, major bleeding event was an acute clinically overt bleeding event with a decrease in hemoglobin of 20 points or lower or two grams per 
deciliter uh, or lower, I guess I should say, or higher since it's a decrease. Uh, if you're in the US, um, a transfusion of two or more units of packed red blood cells or bleeding within a critical site like intracranial, intraspinal, pericardial, intramuscular, etc. It also included any hemorrhagic stroke. So that was the major um, part of the composite and then non-major but clinically relevant. So this was defined as an acute or subacute um, bleeding event resulting in hospital admission. Okay, you came to hospital because of the bleed and you required some form of management, either, you know, clinical management, like something had to be stopped or reversed or surgical management. Now, the analysis was intention to treat and the target sample size was 762 adults. Alrighty, randomized controlled trial, patients on hemodialysis getting either apixaban or warfarin and a pretty clearly laid out outcome. What was the table one? Who was involved? So 154 patients were included. Average age was 68, 36% were women, 45% were black. Average CHADS FASC score was four. Time since the diagnosis of atrial fibrillation was two and a half years and 40% were on aspirin which is kind of confusing considering the exclusion criteria, but uh, essentially 40% were on aspirin because if they were on certain doses, they had to be excluded. But on this dose, it was okay for them to be included. Uh, okay, gotcha. Uh, okay, what was the main result? So firstly, the trial was stopped prematurely because of enrollment challenges. So as you'll remember, the planned sample size was uh, 762 individuals. Partway through the trial, they realized, oh man, it's hard to recruit patients. So they dropped the target sample size down to about 250. And then they realized, yep, it's still really hard to recruit patients. So the sponsor and investigator said, time to throw in the towel, uh, end of study. So keep that in mind, all right? This is based on 154 patients. And the trial, in order for it to be powered, it required almost 800. So what did they find? The one-year rate of bleeding, their primary outcome, occurred in 32% of adults who got a Pixaban compared to 26% who were on Warfarin. So, you know, that's a 6% increase on the absolute scale, but with wide confidence intervals from a relative risk increase. It's like a 20% relative risk increase, but again, with wide confidence intervals. In terms of the rate of stroke or systemic emboli, 3% for adults who got a Pixaban, 3.3% for adults who got warfarin. They had some secondary outcomes in addition to that. So one was rate of death. So death occurred in 26% of patients who got apixaban and 18% of patients who got warfarin. They also looked at sort of time and therapeutic range. So the time and therapeutic range for the warfarin arm was uh, 44%. They also did some really cool pharmacokinetic analyses only on a subset of patients who got apixaban, but they looked at this data and also incorporated it with data from the Aristotle trial, so that initial trial of apixaban versus warfarin. So they were looking and comparing the sort of area under the curve and whatnot, and what did they find? They found that uh, among individuals that got the five milligram dose with end-stage kidney disease, compared to people with mild, moderate, or moderate to severe um, kidney disease, there wasn't a major difference in the steady state uh, apixaban. So, so that suggests at least there wasn't a massive difference, like there was so much more apixaban floating around if you're on uh, dialysis, for example. Ah, that's really interesting. Okay. Uh, what are some of the limitations here? 
I think the fundamental limitation here is that this was an underpowered study. Okay, full stop. So even when I'm talking about risk increase or um, relative scale, absolute scale, whatever, you got to be careful with that because they were completely underpowered. So I almost think of these results more so as being descriptive. Also, it's an unblinded trial. I have a little bit less concern about that because the outcome assessment was blinded. And then for me, John, whenever I see a study that's like way smaller than it should have been, I always ask myself, was there some major difference between the two study arms in terms of the patient population? Because randomization will make sure things are balanced if the trial is really big. What do I mean really big? I don't know, more than 400 people. Um, but when it's this small, I worry, could there have been some factor that was more common in the apixaban group that made them at much higher risk of bleeding? But when I look at the table one, I don't see anything. Um, if anything, uh, patients in the apixaban arm were far less likely, for example, to be on aspirin. So that biases things in the opposite direction. So anyway, underpowered, unblinded. And then the only final point is that patients in the warfarin arm, they got monitored more closely than in the apixaban arm because they had monthly INR checks and the apixaban group didn't have that. So certainly when you have differential surveillance, that can affect your findings. But anyway, those are the three big ones. Yeah, all really important points. Okay, uh, what's the take home here? So, you know, the take home point for me, I think, is that bleeding is extremely common with both drugs, apixaban or warfarin, for patients who are on hemodialysis. And the authors note this in their discussion. Like, when you think about it, there was a tenfold higher rate of bleeding compared to stroke, right? 3% some odd um, rate of stroke and a 30% some odd risk of bleeding. So I just think that's so important for us to counsel our patients about that. If I was in those shoes and I was frail and there was other things going on, I'd probably say, mm, maybe I will not take either drug and just sort of roll the dice here. So that I think is the most interesting take home point it's concerning to see that rates of bleeding were higher in the apixaban arm. But again, that's just descriptive information. All righty. Uh, is this going to change your practice? Will you be more liberal prescribing apixaban with that low, low, low GFR or no GFR? No. If anything, it will actually provide me with the opportunity to talk to my patients, especially if they're getting towards the end of their life or they have many other comorbidities, a question and a conversation to have of like, here are the absolute rates of benefits and harms. Should we just stop this medication? But anyway, maybe I'll I'll see as more clinical time passes. But what about you, John? I wanted to ask, because you just came off med consults, like, does this answer any questions that came up during your uh, uh, weeks on service? You know, I think that uh, I would agree with you in that this is challenging because I don't want my patients to bleed. And I'm not sure why I'm biased against that risk of stroke, though. So maybe one of the things that I do like about this study was kind of no major difference in rate of stroke or embolization between the two groups, uh, acknowledging the limitations of the study itself. 
Um, but I think you've really hit the nail on the head. It, it, it's, it's a conversation with the patient, acknowledging where the uncertainties are with our evidence and, and getting a sense for what the patient is more comfortable with. Because limitations are a lot of things in, a, in the practical sense of like, do you really want to have to go to your doctor's office every couple of weeks initially, every month thereafter to get your INRs monitored? Or are you more comfortable with the idea that, yes, I might have a high risk for bleeding, but my risk of stroke is going to be similar and I'll just take my apixaban, you know? And so I think it just allows for more kind of uh, patient-oriented conversations around what are the risks and benefits that they're comfortable with on an individual level. Mm -hmm. But in all honesty, they're on dialysis, so the frequency of blood work won't affect them, right? Like they're, yeah. Oh yeah, that's a very fair point. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, yeah, they're going in for dialysis. That's an easy INR check. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's an easy INR check. So if any, if anything, as I think more on this, maybe it makes me less likely <laughs> to give a pixaban. But anyway, yeah. we, we we probably need another trial. But guess what? It's probably never going to happen. Look how hard it was. Um, you know, and this trial didn't mention, but uh, it was registered on clinicaltrials.gov like ten years ago, right? So this is ten years of work. Oh, wow. Anyway, um, let's switch gears on to the good stuff. Uh, John, what caught your eye this week? Uh, good stuff. Well, it's almost going to be the new year, depending on when this episode gets released. And so there's lots of good kind of best of 2020 uh, lists out there. Um, we'll post a link for Pitchfork's kind of top 100 albums. Pitchfork's not the be all and end all for deciding on music quality, but they've got some pretty good ones on there. So take a look. Yes. And you just said the best of 2020, which means your brain oh, yeah. still thinks <laughs> that we are in a pre-COVID world. <laughs> uh, 2022. I need more sleep. There you go. Nice. Uh, so for, How about for you? What do you have? Yeah, for me, it was um, a chat GPT. I don't know if you've played around with it yet. You know, it is the most advanced um, machine learn model I've ever seen. It's um, uh, created by OpenAI made publicly available so you can just google chat gpt and uh it can do all sorts of incredible things for example i pasted in the abstract um from the renal af study and i asked chat gpt can you summarize this abstract for me okay and within about <laughs> maybe seven seconds here's what it said okay so listen up listeners the renal AF trial is a study that was conducted to evaluate the safety and effectiveness of apixaban, a blood thinning medication compared to warfarin, another blood thinning medication in patients with end-stage renal disease on dialysis and with AFib and a regular heart rhythm. The study was stopped prematurely because of enrollment challenges, but the results showed that there was no significant difference in rates of major or clinically relevant non-major bleeding between the two groups. However, the rates of stroke or systemic embolism were low in both groups, and death was the most common major event in both groups. The pharmacokinetic substudy showed that there was a substantial overlap between minimum pixaban blood concentration, area under the curve, and maximum apixaban blood concentration for patients with and without a major or clinically relevant non-major bleeding event. The study concluded that there was insufficient power to draw any conclusions about the rates of major or clinically relevant non-major bleeding between two groups, and that there's a need for further research to evaluate the risks and benefits of anticoagulation in patients with AFib and end-stage renal disease on hemodialysis. Oh boy, I think we're out of a job soon. <laughs> Like that's a that's a better summary than I could have done. <laughs> yeah, but I've I've seen this this thing and it's pretty incredible. The other thing that's really fascinating too is you can also get it to give you a reply in the um mannerism or attitude of someone. So like someone put one in where it was like 
discuss the kidney, but in the inspiration of like Stephen King, <laughs> it was done so well. Yeah, it, it is really pretty incredible. impressive. You know, Britt and I are still working through our, our thank you cards from our wedding and I was really running out of original things to say. So I just asked chat GPT, you know, uh, write a thank you card to uncle Bob, uh, for me. And it was beautiful. <laughs> Uncle Bob's getting the best letter, eh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, John, take care. We'll chat again soon and yeah, stay well. Until next time, Mike, talk to you later. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support. <laughs>